0: Thanks so much to the worship team, and thanks, Peter, for stepping in. I was supposed to lead this evening, and I was away last week, and so Billy swapped with me, and it was a little bit of gymnastics and chess, but thanks so much. As you know, I preached from Hebrews chapter 12, probably about two, two and a half months ago now, and when I was thinking about what to preach on this evening, I was actually chatting to Brahm at the time, and he said, well, just go back to the beginning of Hebrews, So I was doing some calculations. I think if I were to preach through Hebrews one Sunday every about eight weeks, I'll probably get through to the end of Hebrews in about 73 years. (laughs) So please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses. Hebrews chapter 1. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thanks, bro. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. Welcome to Hebrews. We could well describe the book of Hebrews as a great bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant, But one enduring mystery has threatened to overshadow the glorious and profound subject matter of the letter. And the mystery is, who wrote the book of Hebrews? And over the centuries, and indeed thousands of years now, much ink has been spilt. uh, Debating the authorship of the book, most of the early church fathers and many Puritans, such as John Owen and John Brown, tended to believe that the Apostle Paul wrote it. And I know quite a number of my brothers and sisters in Christ also believe that he wrote it. But one of that great church father, Oregon, although he believed Paul wrote it, he actually said, But as to who wrote it, the truth is known to God. And we can get a little bit caught up in debates like this. Although he also believed Paul wrote it, the great John Owen said, in his usual tricky English, writings that proceed from divine inspiration receive no addition of authority from the reputation or esteem of them by whom they are written. And this holy Ghost, and thus the Holy Ghost, hath sufficiently manifested by shutting up the names of many of them from the knowledge of the church in all ages. And so I believe we leave it at that. In broad brush strokes. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were over-attached to the Mosaic ceremonies and the laws, and it was written to strengthen those believers and to wean them away from those ceremonies and rituals that are but shadows of the new covenant in Christ's blood. But most importantly, it was written to explain how the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is superior to the old covenant in every way. It was also written to preach the constancy in faith as the great duty to which we are called. So briefly, the letter is divided into two sections. The first one is from chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 10, verse 18, and it's predominantly doctrinal. And the second part is from chapter 10, verse 19, until the end is predominantly doctrinal practical. We'll be looking at the introduction in the first three verses. Then the writer shows that Christ is superior first to the angels, second to Moses, and then third to the Aaronic priesthood. The practical section exhorts readers to constancy in the profession and expression of their faith, and he closes with a variety of particular individual exhortations. But that is just a broad brush stroke. Well, human history is full of famous and notorious last words. And I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated with reading what famous and not-so-famous people's last words were. For example, Joseph Wright was a linguist. And he was the editor of the English dialect dictionary. His final word simply was, as he died, dictionary. Blues singer Bessie Smith died saying, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. Nostradamus, the night before he died, said, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. And he was right. (laughs) Leonardo da Vinci on his deathbed said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Wow. So Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, turned to his wife on his deathbed and he said, "'You are wonderful.'" Spike Milligan, that amazing British comedian in his usual brilliant wit, had the following words engraved on his tombstone, "'I told you I was ill.'" (laughs) During the American Civil War, at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, Union General John Sedgwick was teasing his men who kept ducking behind cover, hiding from snipers. He said, I'm ashamed of you dodging that way. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And promptly, two minutes later, he got shot by a sniper. But the famous last words of human beings pale into insignificance compared to almighty God speaking. And they can do nothing more than simply entertain us. They cannot save us. They cannot redeem us. They do not have life in and of themselves. But God's words are true. They are holy, entirely reliable, and are perfect. They are words we can depend upon for our very lives. Because we are lost sinners, God has spoken to us and has provided the means for the purification of sins through Christ the better way. That's a summary of the first three verses of Hebrews. So from that passage tonight, we are going to learn that because we are lost sinners, God has spoken in his sovereignty. God has spoken in his son and God has spoken in the cross. So firstly, because we are lost sinners, God has spoken in his sovereignty. Hope you still have your Bibles open. Look with me at verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. As you read the opening verses of this letter, who is the main character? God. God is the main character of this letter. It is easy, as I said, to get sidetracked, trying to figure out who is the author. But I think the Holy Spirit designed it that way so that our focus would be on the main character of this book, God. God is so important to the writer that he mentions God 68 times. It's an average of once every 73 words. Very few other books in the New Testament mention God so often. So we're going to look briefly at how God spoke in his sovereignty and then at why God spoke in his sovereignty. The writer, as we see at the beginning, is contrasting two ways that God has spoken. The first is in the past, when he spoke to the fathers in the prophets. The second is in these last days, when he has spoken in his son. And as we go through the book of Hebrews, you will realize that this contrast is emphasized throughout the whole the old compared to the new the shadows of the old compared to the bright shining glory of Christ in the new the old covenant with its need for repeated sacrifices compared with the new covenant where Christ has died once for all in verse 1 if you'll note the writer says that God spoke long ago literally that means of old it was before the 400 years silent years after the prophet Malachi and the writer compares it and contrasts it with saying that God has spoken in these last days. This is where context is important because the readers would have understood that when they said in these last days, the writer was meaning the Messianic age. It was the age all Jews longed for. Their mindset was focused on the Messianic age to come and they called it the last days. The days they lived in, they called these current days of evil. And they spoke about the last days of the Messiah. So the writer is telling these Jewish Christians that the previous age was the age of the prophets. This final revelation has brought in the Messianic age. See, also in verse 1, the writer says that God spoke in many portions and in many ways in many portions, simply means that God spoke in many different time periods. And we can see this throughout the Old Testament. God's will was gradually revealed to mankind, spanning more than thousand years, beginning with the books of Moses, the descriptions of Israel's history, the poetic revelations, through the many prophets right up to Malachi. But note that the author also says, in many ways, The sovereign, all-powerful God spoke to Moses in a burning bush. He spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. He spoke to Isaiah majestically in a mighty vision in the temple. He spoke to Hosea in the midst of his family circumstances. He spoke to Amos in a basket of fruit. God used visions and dreams. He used angels. He spoke through symbols, through natural events, smoke, a pillar of fire, he used the urim and thummim on the breastplates of the high priest. He even used a donkey. This tells us how God spoke, but why? Why did God speak to us in his sovereignty? Now, the opening verses in Hebrews don't necessarily explicitly say the sovereign God, but it's implicit. And we see it that God is the one who initiates the interaction. God is at the center of doing the speaking. Humanity is lost in its sin, and it is so lost in its sin that it would never even want to interact with God in the first place. Therefore, only a sovereign God can do the speaking. God is sovereign. He does as he chooses. Mankind is lost and dead in its sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, Chapter 3, we'll start at verse 10, I should say. Here, Paul quotes a number of Old Testament scriptures emphasizing this There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Without a sovereign and powerful God speaking and acting, mankind would still be lost, Without hope, they would be completely unaware of their need for salvation, nor of their true sinfulness. What about you? I know most of you here this evening, but maybe there is someone where before now, the sovereign God has not actually spoken to you. Perhaps you've heard the message of the gospel many times, but have never fully grasped it. But maybe now is the time the sovereign God is speaking into your heart, Maybe now is the time that he is offering you eternal life through his son. Praise to God that he has spoken. Listen to it. Most of you are no believers. Let's beg God to speak in his sovereignty to the lost people groups, like in Nepal. Let's pray for our missionaries that God would use them in his sovereignty to speak his word to the lost. So. Just chatted about God who has spoken in His sovereignty. Secondly, because God, ha, because we are lost sinners, God has spoken in His Son. Look in verse two. In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world, and He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. Yeah, we see that great. Contrast, again, the prophets compared to the son. And as we focus upon the son, it's interesting to note that in the Greek, there's no article or word before the word son, which would seem to be a little bit strange. Most translations add the word his to make it flow more easily, and they're not incorrect in assuming that it is God's son, But the writers omitted that word deliberately because he wants to contrast the nature of the prophets with the essence of the son, which is the sonship, the son's relationship with the father. Jesus himself illustrates this perfectly in the parable of the vineyard owner in Luke chapter 20. A man plants a vineyard, that's representing God, He rents it out to vine growers, who are the nation of Israel, and then he goes on a long journey. At harvest time, he sends slaves, a series of slaves, to go and collect the produce at harvest time. But the slaves are abused, mistreated, and some are even killed by the vine growers. The slaves represent the prophets. So the owner then decides to send his only son. Verse 13 says, The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The prophets are not the same as the son. They are merely slaves of God. The Son is from God and is God. However, we see not only a contrast between prophets and Son, but we also see the consummation of the message of the prophets in the Son. The earlier revelation of the fathers in the prophets now finds its fulfillment in the Son. The same God who spoke to the prophets now speaks in the Son. It now follows a series of statements about the Son that explain why the Son is so important and why God has spoken to us in him. Let's go through these briefly, phrase by phrase, and then a word of application. The first phrase is, whom he appointed heir of all things, and it seems to be quite a strange one, and it's being used as ammunition against the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus. So let's just break it down word by word. Context is important because the word appointed has nothing to do with Jesus being lifted up to a higher position or attaining to a higher position, but has everything to do with what he has accomplished according to his purposes with the Father. The answer lies in the context of the passage. And the context to this phrase is found in verses 3 and 4, where it says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down, you notice that's the key phrase, when he had made purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the, fa- of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Him becoming better than the angels and inheriting a name better than theirs is directly linked with his having made purification of sins. But not only that, If we get a little bit technical, and I had to rely on some Greek experts for this, the Greek word for appointed is actually in something called the aorist active indicative tense. It simply means that he had already been appointed in the past by deduction in eternity past. So the son was appointed heir because he was already heir and had just finished making purification for sins. The phrase, heir of all things, is simply a title of dignity, showing Christ's supreme place in the whole universe, which he had made. And his being appointed heir of all things occurred after his work on earth was completed, and it didn't mark a new dignity, but rather a re-entry into his rightful place. And we see this place of dignity in the next phrase, where it says, through whom he also made the world. Listen to the Apostle John in his gospel. He says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, He is before all things. There we see again his place of dignity, his position, the heir of all things. He is before all things. And Paul says, and in him all things hold together. So not only did he create everything, but he holds it together. The commentator John Brown, and I have Andrew to thank for his commentary, brilliant commentary. John Brown says, The ascription of the creation of the universe to the sun is a most satisfactory proof of his proper divinity. To bring the universe into existence from nothing, to establish such perfect harmony as pervades all its parts, obviously requires a power and wisdom altogether infinite. Not only did he create all things, but as Paul emphasizes as well, he sustains all things. By his powerful word. And that is another proof of his infinite power and his divinity. So we come to that final phrase, which is actually now a double phrase. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Meaning, if you see the son, you see the father. Now the word glory held a very special significance to the Jews. We see the visible glory of God with Moses in the burning bush. We see it in the miraculous cloud that guided Israel in the wilderness. And we see it resting on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and later in the temple. However, the glory mentioned here in Hebrews is much greater than those manifestations. The sun was not a reflection of the glory, but rather consisted in the glory Itself. Another old Puritan by the name of Pius Smith said, English is a little bit tricky, so listen carefully. He is that to the divine father, which the solar light falling on our world is to the same light at the source of its emanations. In other words, he is the very radiance itself, not a reflection of the radiance. Again, John Brown says, This perfect glory, this complete divine majesty resides in Christ and shines forth from him so that he is the communicator of its knowledge and enjoyment to mankind. The exact representation of his nature. When you see the Son, you see the Father. As humble as Jesus of Nazareth was externally, He was the true Shekinah glory of God, in whom dwelt the Godhead bodily, the exact representation of the eternal King. The Apostle John, various quotes from him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the life was manifested, furthermore he says, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Again he says, truly truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing for whatever the Father does, these things, The Son also does in like manner. And again, he said, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And he also said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Praise God. The divinity and majesty of the Son cannot be more clearly expressed than in all of these Passages, And when Satan wants to attack the foundations of Christianity, one of the ways is that he attacks the the deity and divinity of Christ. And he does that by attacking Scripture itself. This is why holding to inerrancy in Scripture is so vital. This is why we as a church hold to inerrancy. And why, as we're learning with Andrew, we have resigned from the Baptist Union a number of years ago. This is why knowing your church history is so important. Without the inerrancy of Scripture, Satan will undermine our fundamental beliefs and call into doubt the most important doctrines of our faith. Without the deity of Christ, our faith is useless. The point of application is simple. Have you been tempted to doubt the reliability of Scripture? Have your liberal Christian friends been influencing your belief in the inerrancy of the Bible? Beware. Giving up on the inerrancy of the Bible opens the floodgates of doubt. Before you know it, your faith is undermined and you've walked away. Don't doubt the deity of Christ. Our faith and life depend upon it. So not only has God spoken in His sovereignty and in His Son, but thirdly, because we are lost sinners, God has spoken in the cross. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That phrase, when he had made purification of sins, has been the ultimate focus of all the centuries of the prophecies and utterances of the prophets, right from the beginning of time. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God promised that the seed of the woman shall strike the serpent's head. The cross and the resurrection of Christ have been the ultimate end point. The writer to the Hebrews sees sin as a huge problem. The commentator Bauer says, In this epistle, sin appears as the power that deceives men and leads them to destruction, whose influence and activity can be ended only by sacrifice. But the sacrifices of the old covenant were insufficient to remove sins from us and to cleanse us. Those sacrifices pointed to Christ. Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world in Revelation 8. He is the Passover lamb whose blood redeems us. The sacrifice of the son on the cross has purged our sins Later in the book of Hebrews, we read the following, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And further, he said, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In chapter 9 of Hebrews, we also read, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, like as the high priest enters a holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, But now once, at the consummation of the ages, messianic age, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ sacrificed himself taking our place. Christ's sacrifice is at the very center of our faith. His sacrifice was what the entire Old Testament was pointing towards. Having entered the Holy of Holies and made purification for sins, instead of having to retire from God's presence like the earthly high priests, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, thus showing his deity and perfection. Christ's resurrection and ascension and his sitting at the right hand of the Father shows his victory over Never has his omnipotence, his infinite wisdom, his perfect holiness, his unshakable righteousness, his glorious kindness shone forth with greater radiance than when he made purification for our sins upon the cross. And he did it for you and for me. Is the sovereign God speaking to you right now? Is he speaking in his sovereignty into your heart, convicting you of your sin? Is he speaking to you of his son, the glorious only begotten son who is now sitting at his right hand? Is he speaking to you in the cross, showing you that no number of your own good deeds is going to wipe out your sin? Come to him now. Bow the knee before him now. Repent. For those who are believers, God is speaking to you. Is God speaking to you in his sovereignty, telling you to love his word more, to read and study his word more, to trust his word more, to pray for the missionaries more so that God's sovereignty and his word will be preached to the lost? Is God speaking to you in his son, strengthening your faith right now, reassuring you of his perfection? Because God has indeed spoken. Because we are lost sinners, God has spoken to us and has provided the means for the purification of sins through Christ, the better way. Let's pray. Eternal, unchangeable Lord, your perfections and glories will never change. Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You spoke the world into existence and sustain it by your powerful word. Lord God, you have condescended to speak to us lost sinners. We marvel at the way in which you spoke in the past, how you gradually revealed your glorious plan of salvation, how your majesty has been shown over and over and how you spoke to the prophets. But Lord, they were simply slaves to your purposes. Your plan was to finally, and in your sovereignty, thunder forth your speech in your son. Lord Jesus, thank you. You are sitting at the right hand of the majesty, showing your perfection, your finished work, your dignity. Forgive us for doubting you and your word. Help us to trust your scriptures, Lord. And Lord, I pray right now that the words of the Lord would pierce the hearts of listeners. Save those who are lost. Encourage and uplift the saved. And please, Father, bring glory to your name. Amen.